0: Read along with me, if you would, please, starting in verse 1. And our goal, of course, is to take on the chapter. We'll see what God has for us. Leviticus chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, a bull as a sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. He put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, and girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. Then he put on the breastplate with on him, and put the urim and the tumim in the breastplate, and he put the turban on his head. Also on the turban, on its front, he put the golden plate the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons to put tunics on them, girded them with sashes, and put hats on them, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he brought the bull for the sin offering. Then Aaron and the sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the, for the sin offering, and Moses killed it. And then he took the blood and put some of the horns of the altar, some on the, horn, the horns of the altar, and around it with his finger, all around it with his finger, and it purified the altar. He poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the fat in the kidneys, and their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bowl, its hide, its flesh, and its offal, he burned with fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he brought the ram as the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses killed it. They sprinkled the blood all around the altar and cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head the pieces and the fat. And he washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he brought the second ram, the ram of consecration. Then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses killed it. And he took some of its blood and put it on the the tip of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. And he brought Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the tips of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses sprinkled the blood all around the altar. And he took the fat, and the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and the right thigh and from the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake, a cake of bread anointed with oil and one wafer and put them on the fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in Aaron's hands and in his son's hands and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took from them took them from their hands and burned them on the altar on the burnt offering. They were consecration offerings for a sweet aroma. That was an offering made by fire to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it as a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' part of the ram of consecration, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the, the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him and he consecrated Aaron his sons his, his garments his sons and the garments of his sons with him moses said to Aaron and his sons boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is on the basket that is in the basket of consecrations offers, offerings as i commanded saying Aaron and his sons shall eat it what remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn with fire You shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are ended. For seven days he shall consecrate you. As he has done this day, so the Lord has commanded to do to make atonement for you. Therefore, you shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night for seven days and keep charge of the Lord so that you may not die. For so I have been commanded. So Aaron and his sons did. All the things that the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to worship you with my family. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of being able to assemble here in this room today. And Lord, we know that there is a glorious diversity among us of nationalities and ages and backgrounds. And yet, Lord, the issue isn't where we came from, the issue is where we're going. And yet, Lord, we know because of where we've come from, there are different obstacles to face here as we come into this place corporately. There is the the issue of whatever sin we've come from, not wanting it to haunt us, wanting to stand free of it, and wanting to look at the world free from the jaded way that we could be from the sin we've come from. So, Lord, deliver us from that into you. Lord, we pray you show your power there. Lord, from different societies, Where we may view things from different priorities and different views of success. And yet, Lord, we've come to be transformed into the image of your Son through the power of your Holy Spirit and the vehicle of your Word. So, God, I pray that you would show your power to transform us. Not allowing us to conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Show your power there, please. Lord, we come from different languages. And therefore, Lord, we need you to, to do something that is clearly miraculous. Do not allow whatever language we spoke initially, when we, before we came in this room, Lord, do not allow that to in any way interfere with what you want to say to every one of us today. So, Lord, please have your way. Minister in this time And speak to every one of us, regardless of whether English is our first or our second language, regardless of whether English is our second language and we don't even have a first language. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray today that you would minister to every one of us. Perform the therapy, Lord, but beyond simple therapy, beyond simple symptom, go to the cause, Lord, and not the symptom, to provide the cure and not simply treatment, That we could walk out of here delivered from things we may have struggled with our whole life. Walk out of here encouraged, and challenged. If there is anyone yet to know you as their Lord and Savior, let this be the time of their salvation. If there is anyone discouraged, encourage them. Anyone weak, strengthen them. Anyone complacent, challenge them. Anyone who is unruly, warn them. Anyone, Lord, who is growing in you, may they discover a bit or more of their calling today. But don't leave us alone. May every one of us encounter you in your word now. And may we have so much fun as your word bursts open and comes alive for every one of us. That we today would say, wow, what an amazing God. Have your time now, we pray. And thank you for the blessing of this time. Redeem every second, I pray. In Jesus' name, fill me with your spirit and do your work. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. (coughs) No man, (coughs) no organization, Jesus, God in the flesh, in his word. We are now in chapter 8 of the book of Leviticus. And the first seven chapters, and it's such a great thing we have that before we get here, there is an emphasis on, in in a definition of sacrifices. Seven specific, I'm sorry, five specific offerings that are given in these seven chapters. The burnt offering the first of the five, which was in sort of emblemized by the fact that the entire thing was burnt, the grain offering that reminded us of God's fruitfulness, the peace offering that focused on the fat. <clears throat> if you remember when we looked at the peace offering, how all of the fat was burned. And I love the fact God's like, don't eat blood, don't eat fat. <coughs> I wonder what God would do with a Scottish menu. Anyways, The peace offering. Anytime you start seeing a lot of attention to fat, you kind of start thinking, wow, that kind of reminds me of the peace offering. The fourth, the sin offering. Idealized by laying your hands on the animal, confessing your sins to be put upon the animal, and then the animal was burned outside of the camp. And then finally, the trespass offering. The one that was offered for where you actually volunteered yourself to do something stupid. In six and seven, there were specific laws for those offerings. But the focus in six and seven were really to make sure that the priest was taken care of, though you offered for the parts that were left in many cases, (coughs) excuse me, a lot of that was given to the priest because the priest didn't work. This is what they did. They didn't own land. They didn't farm. They didn't ranch. And as a result of that, that was what basically you were their meal ticket. It wasn't like a priest would be praying you would sin, (coughs) just so that you could make sure you could give him something to eat. Because some of these things, like the burnt offering was something you offered, or the grain offering, or the peace offering, didn't necessarily have to involve sin. In Revelation, in Revelation as we get into our text here, just to kind of see our uh, relationship with it, three different times in the book of Revelation, one six five ten, and 20, verse 6, God reminds us that he's made us priests. So let me make clear what a priest is and then get into this. But understand, because we understand the first seven chapters, that's what makes this so rich. If you kind of go, blood, animals killing, blood, animals killing, blood, animals killing, and then you get to this, it doesn't have the depth. And one of the reasons, oh, thank you so much, darling. Oh, thank you. Mark that hook me up with her. That's my wife, in case you don't know. Of 24 years. A priest had two basic functions. He represented man to God, and he represented God to man. That was the role of a priest. And can I say, to this day, the same applies. As a father in my household, as a husband in my household, I am a priest. I represent God to man and man to God. My wife, in essence, represents a priestess in the sense that she represents God to man and man to God in her relationship with our children. Now, please hear me. God wants us to bear forth the way he does. This Kohen Gadol, this priest, bore forth jewelry upon his body for good reason. He had this beautiful breastplate that we see here <clears throat> with 12 beautiful precious stones. I don't know how many of you saw in the, an article this week about this ring that had been auctioned off for enough money to buy Chelsea, the team, and the area. Uh, unbelievable. It was this pink diamond that was like, I don't know who's going to wear it because it's too heavy to carry. Anyways. The, you realize how precious some of those stones are. And this person's walking with 12 beautiful precious stones with the names of all of the tribes of Israel on it. But on his shoulders were two black stones with six names apiece so that all 12 tribes were listed there as well. And understand this is key to the idea of being a priest. He has made us, that's what it says in Revelation, he's made us kings and priests. See, from the perspective of man, you see straight ahead, and <clears throat> seeing straight ahead, what you see are these beautiful, precious stones with the names of them on it. But from God's perspective, looking down, he sees these black stones with the names of Israel written upon them. Can I just suggest, that's the way a life of a priest goes. We stand before the Lord and we bring the blackness of other people's sins and sufferings and we pray for them. We intercede for people. We pray that God would deliver them, strengthen them, change them. Not because we're tired of dealing with them, being human, but because we love them. And before God, we carry before them the concerns of others. This is the role of a priest. But that's not the part the people see. That's the part God sees. The part people see are these beautiful, precious stones. And as we represent God to man, we represent a God who, as he says in Matthew 13, walked through a field and saw a jewel so precious that he gave up everything to buy the whole field. In the sight of God, you are a precious perfect jewel for which god loved you and wanted you so much he was willing to give up everything just to get that's the role of a priest and we have our first levitical priest here not our first priest our first high priest was all the way back to genesis with a guy named melchizedek whose name by the way means king of righteousness who we read about no lineage we read about no past or future. The guy shows up as if the strangest thing, he shows up on stage, Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoil, and then he sort of blesses him with bread and wine, and he disappears. And you go, who in the world was that? You ever watch a movie and someone shows up and you go, has this person been there, or is it just me? I'm terrible with that. And I'm like, is, that, is that, has that person been on here before? Are they important? And some, sometimes my wife will say, well, that's the main character. I'm like, oh, I, I've missed that the whole time. Later on, by the way, and we'll see this with every one of these things established in the Torah. This is what makes it beautiful, is it's established in the Torah. That's our first five books, or we would call the Pentateuch. And then after that point, promised beyond that, and then fulfilled in Jesus. Let me explain, and we'll actually get into our text. With this high priest, here now God is enacting, he is now inaugurating the priesthood. So we're actually now in some form of Uh, narrative. We're not just getting into laws and rules and regulations. This is a narrative. This is taking place. But it tells us in the book of, now again, the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, we're looking at something written somewhere between the 1200s, most likely about the 1400s, 1500s B.C. But in 1000 BC, when the Psalms are written, we read, you are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There is another priest coming in the line of Melchizedek promised after this. So though it's established in the Torah, it is promised 500 years later in the book of Psalms. And then it is fulfilled in Jesus. As the Hebrew says, Jesus is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The sacrificial system for which he makes a covenant. God promises with that sacrificial system in the book of Jeremiah, I will create a new covenant, no longer requiring such sacrifices, nor for that matter will you have to write the law because I'm going to write it on your hearts. So it is fulfilled, or I should say it's established in the Torah. It is promised afterwards. Jeremiah, by the way, about 700 BC and then fulfilled in Jesus. So God has this habit of setting things up here, showing you that's not the complete of it, And then showing you how Jesus fulfills it. Now we have the situation with this priest. Now I want to remind you, Noah is, Noah, what in the world? Moses, I was just checking to see if you were listening. Moses is now 81 years old. He was 80 when he went before Pharaoh, that was a year ago. That's simple math. His brother is three years older than him. How old is Aaron? 84. Don't you wish that all of those word questions were that easy? Trains coming in different directions. Anyways, you get it. So here's an 81-year-old man who has been walking up and down the mountain for a year. He's at Mount Sinai. And God says, I've got some specific things I want you to do with your brother as you now inaugurate him as the high priest. In the first five verses, in the simplest sense, here's your shopping list. What I need is some clothes, specifically made, anointing oil, some sacrifices, specifically a bull and two rams, some bread. You have it all. Check. Tick the boxes. Now go get the people. So he gets the people. And at that point, this is one of my favorite verses in this whole thing, because it shows me the humanity and the humor of this. Look at verse five for a second. Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord commanded to be done. Do you know why he's saying that? Here's the idea. I'm the younger one. That's... That's Moses. Here's old Aaron. Right? Now, God has given him specific instructions. Are you with me on this? Now, we're not in front of two million people like Moses would be. But Moses knows he's going to have to wash this guy. He's going to have to put clothes on him. So... I don't even want to go with how far down this brother had to be to be washed, if that makes sense. But he's got to do this in front of two million people. You get that? How weird is that? Do any of you have any brothers or sisters within a few years? Could you imagine the younger one? Those of you who are younger, how many of you are the younger sibling? How many of you? I know Yasmin, where you at? I know you that. No, I'm that. Imagine if Yasmin has to pull her sister here, Amina, out, and she's got a washer in front of people, put some special clothes on her, cover in some oil. I mean, imagine. So this is what Moses says in verse 5. He looks at the people and he says, before we start this, God told me to do this. That's what he says, right? Think about it. Because he knows it's weird. He knows it's wonky. And he knows that people are going to think that guy's gone senile. That guy's crazy. You're with me on that. Now, thank you, Aaron. Please follow me on this. Just because it's weird doesn't mean it's not of the Lord. Just because it's weird doesn't mean it is of the Lord either. Remember that. There are times where the Lord will call you to do something. And, and, and you know what? It's like, even in obedience, you feel like you have to tell people, I'm, gonna, I'm only going to do this because I feel like God told me to. Do you know what I'm saying? But you know what? Let me ask you something. If you genuinely believe the Lord called you to do something, and you took the step of faith to do it, would God be more blessed if you got your, if you didn't really hear right? Or if you sat at home and said, I'm not really sure that was God, so I'm just going to sit here and do nothing? Which one of, you, of those do you think God would be more blessed by? And it's amazing how we could be really good at talking ourselves out of doing things that aren't even crazy simply because somehow we think that God's going to buy <coughs> that we didn't hear him right, the God who knows everything. So that what happens in the end of it all is we stand there before the Lord and he's like, congratulations, you did nothing so well. Well, not done, good and faithful, lazy person. What's he going to say? This is one of those weird moments. Here's the funniest part to me, is when God tells you to do something and you say, and this is my favorite, and you go, that must be Satan. Right? Because like, you know, and this is, and okay, I get hit with this. Back when, before, now understand, we're talking way, way back before some of you were born. We were actually doing college ministry up in Chico, California, known by the way, for being the party university in all of the United States, by adult magazines, for whatever it's worth. Not that I read them, they were just proud of it. Now, with that in mind, one of the things is is that we used to have, I just you think out of the box when you're trying to minister to people out in university. And then we're, I mean, basically when you're in love with the Lord, you're always just looking for opportunities. So someone says, are you an opportunist? I'm like, yes, I am. You know, it's like, we got to get, we, let's just hold our ground. You know, someone goes, oh, you're just going to feed those people, so you're going to give Jesus to them. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, isn't that manipulative? No, what that's called is kind. Are you feeding them at all? I don't see a sandwich in your hand. So just move on. You know, I mean, it's amazing how people condemn you and they're like, yeah, well, I'm not going to feed them because I'm not going to be a hypocrite. <laughs> Never mind. Anyways, so the crazy thing is, so I'm, it's one of those nights, it's like two in the morning and I'm like, we need to reach the people out on frat row, fraternity row where everybody gets drunk. And you know, what's interesting is at two in the morning, one in the morning, there's always somebody sitting on a curb somewhere trying to figure out their life. Okay. So you're walking, or in this case, it was me or someone that I knew, right? And walking down the street, and the Lord says, go talk to that girl. And you're like, oh, come on. It's like one o'clock in the morning, and it's a girl. She's going to think I'm hitting on her. That must be Satan. Because, you know, what Satan's going to say is, you need to go preach the gospel to that girl trying to figure out her life on the curb. Is that amazing? We could actually say that that's probably Satan, but it is amazing how we do that. Here's here's Moses. He's got to wash his brother. 84-year-old guy. Do you think Aaron wants to show you an 84-year-old body to the 2 million people that are in his community? So with that in mind, he does. Now, this particular chapter, for what it's worth, works quickly and beautifully, but it works basically as a trilogy. Three basic situations that take place. The first is, what it takes to be a priest, what's how this whole thing starts. The second, then, are those sacrifices that are made in between And then the third, some final statements made to challenge you in regards to maintaining a good priesthood. So the first thing, by the way, four things that Moses has to do for him to actually inaugurate himself as a priest. Here it is. You ready with me? Are you ready with me? Yes. Okay, four of you. Are the rest of you ready? Okay, thank you. Okay, listen. First thing is in verse 6. Look at it with me. It says, Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water. That's how this starts. The first thing that has to happen if you're going to be a priest, and God calls you to be, is you need to be cleansed. But here's the problem. We cannot cleanse ourselves. Our hands are too dirty. He's got to cleanse us. You've got to be cleansed. So number one, he cleanses. Your turn. Number one, Thank you. Let's try that again. Come on, you guys. This is no time for it to slip into a coma. Number one. He beautiful. He cleanses. Listen to these verses just to sort of toss things out. Psalm nineteen twelve. Who can understand his ears? Cleanse me from my secret faults. <coughs> Sorry. Psalm 51, 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice it doesn't say, I've cleansed myself. It says, please, God, I need you to cleanse me. It says in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's Jesus' job. Jesus is a full-on perfect absolute cleanser no spot too tough he has no problem cleaning you listen god does not have the word difficult in his vocabulary if you weren't involved not that you're difficult to work with just that you keep telling him the word there's nothing difficult for him there's just things difficult for you And somehow then you must think, God, it's difficult for you. And God's like, it's not difficult for me. I spoke the universe into existence with a word. I could just say, let there be if I wanted to. You really think God's ever on the ropes? But God, that's really dirty. That's really filthy. He's like, I'm clean enough for both of us. He's so clean, he's the cleaner. So understand, if you're going to be the priest God calls you to be, you need to get cleansed. Now understand, a filthy mind, a filthy heart, do not make for a good priest. But what I have learned is, is that if you're busy trying to be clean, the way God calls you to be clean, your hands will get dirty. But they'll get dirty with other lives. The same way that a doctor that has learned how to provide cure will find all kinds of things. That's why he does that little wash up thing that he does all the time and then puts gloves on. Because he knows he's going to be touching things that need curing and doesn't want to take that onto himself. Let me ask you, have you been washed in the blood of Jesus? Here's the good news. Jesus didn't just go, bloink, you're clean. He opened up a river and threw you in. And the reason is because we need constant cleansing, right? Let's be honest. Instead of thinking ourselves as sort of the person that's sort of reading a paper on a flotation device in the stream, think of yourself rather as the pebble that's in the bottom made beautiful and shiny and smooth by the current. Because that's the blood of Jesus. Do you see the difference? Now, that's so much better. Aren't you glad that Jesus did that without having to take you in front of two million people and hose you off? Now, for what it's worth, at least it would be probably very hot out in the wilderness. You probably would have liked it for a moment, except everybody was watching you. And would you cover your children's eyes? What are they doing? I don't know. Moses is washing them. Yeah, he's cleansing. So, so, number one, he cleanses. Number one, he That's a great start. Now look at verses 7 through 9. That's our second step. He put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, put on the ephod, girded him with the intricately woven band. And all of this, by the way, we've seen developed, if you want, we have the whole teaching on this, specifically back in the book of Exodus. Tied the ephod, he put the breastplate on him. Remember that breastplate's the one with the beautiful, wonderful, um, you know, with all of the um, the precious stones. The urn, the by the way, and I'll speak about that in just a second here, and the breastplate, and he put the turban on his head. So the second thing he did, by the way, is he clothes. The first is he cleanses, and the second is he clothes. Now, for what it's worth, you do know that that's the proper order, right? And if you ever say, you know what I really should do this morning is put on my clothes, and just to save some time, I'll put them on in the shower. You know, maybe you, but for the rest of the world, as it gets colder, that gets a little bit more, you know, it's like, you kind of know it would be nice to clean yourself up first and then put on your clothes, the new clothes, because otherwise what's going to happen is stinky clothes become new stinky clothes. Now, now please hear me on that for what it's worth. So many times what we could do is we could actually want God to do the outside first. And so what happens is like, look, I came to the Lord a week ago. How come I'm still dealing with sin? Look at how I still said this dumb thing and my hands are doing. What in the world am I doing? And God's like, look it. First of all, I need to cleanse the inside so that then I can clothe the outside. Now, understand your clothes say an awful lot about you. And to those days, there are two very basic things that your clothes speak of. Number one, they speak about your identity, who you think you are. Now, obviously, there are certain things. We have categories now for style, right? You know, maybe you are a punk. Maybe you're a goth. Nice mascara. You go through a bottle of it every two days. Maybe you're a hipster. Nice mustache wax. When we were in in Spain... We got to see one guy that he was so much a hipster, I didn't, I, I didn't know what to do with the guy. But he had the full-on mustache wax. I mean, it was, I could have taken a picture and said, there is your hipster poster boy. In a church full of people that weren't remotely hipster. And they say something about you. The way that you dress. They speak about your satisfaction or dissatisfaction with yourself. They speak about what it is you choose to advertise about yourself, what you choose to highlight or not highlight. So these do speak about your identity to some degree. You know, the person sometimes they're like 75, but they're still trying to fit in something that really was only made for a 14 year old. You kind of know that tells you something. That's part of their identity. Don't be checking out my outfit now. On the other side of it, they also speaks about Your wealth. Because in those days, you actually spent clothing like currency. Do you remember all the way back, by the way, with Joseph and beyond, for instance, with Elijah when things were happening, or with um, Achan, if you remember, Achan, when they go and they take the area of Jericho, remember, a guy steals clothes. Here's the most, this is to me one of the most astounding things. You've got a group of people who have been slaves for 40 years. They're about to take the promised land and they go into the first place and the guy steals a couple Armani suits. That's what he does. He takes a couple Babylonian garments. So everybody's wearing grays and natural colors, sandals. They're the new converse, right? And I mean, this is what we've worn for 40 years now. That's all we know. We know how to make, you know, out of old things, we make a rope that kind of ties things up. That's what we all look like. We all basically look like a friar and you're going to go and steal like a couple things that look like they came out of a Grateful Dead concert. You're really thinking, where are you going to wear those? They go, oh, these old things, I've had them lying around. No, you didn't. But they do speak about money. And to this day, certain clothes speak about money. You know that. Some people will not buy clothes unless they have a certain label on them. Check out my whatever. I'm, by the way, for what it's worth, I actually really do love almost stuff. Knockoff stuff. I have Abibas. I have an Abibas stocking cap, by the way. I love stuff like that. I, I would wear a Girky watch because I wouldn't wear a Gucci one, but I would wear a Gherky one, you know, like an, or a Bolex, just because that's, that's just kind of fun for me. Um, because to me, I just think, nice try. <laughs> but that's maybe just where I'm at. And, and here's the point of it, is that for him to clothe you, it's the same thing. You see, but before he clothes you, he cleanses you. That's key here. Because if you just want to be clothed and go, just give me a new identity, what happened is there's still a jerk in the new identity. There's the problem. And he needs to cleanse that person so that something happens here. And understand, God does that. So, number one. What's number one? He cleanses. He cleanses. What's number two? He, cleanses. he clothes. Listen to a couple quick verses. Listen to this. It tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, that's our bodies is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with the habitat, with our habitation, which from heaven, wouldn't you just love your heavenly body now? You know, wouldn't it be funny if it really wasn't? I mean, how many of you actually think when you think my heavenly body is probably like super buff, full head of hair. He's a good, perfect singing voice, you know. Nothing gets hurt, right? Wouldn't it be funny if we were all just kind of plump? And it doesn't matter. Because there's no sin. So it isn't like we're going to size each other up anyways. But for whatever it's worth. So, so in this we groan. We desire to have that now. But, verse 3, indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, we groan now. And as we get older, we groan more. Every time we sit up and get down, right? We kind of go, all right. In this we groan. Being further, it says being burdened, not wanting to be unclothed, but further clothed that our mortality would be swallowed up by life. But now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. In Ephesians chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3, we're told to put off the old man and to put on the new one. That looks like him, by the way that's being continually made more like him. Understand, God has a new wardrobe for you. Think of it this way. Let's say that what happened is, is that Anthony here, let's just say Anthony, when we first met him, let's say so a year ago, Anthony comes walking in and he's actually 40 stone. The man is so large, he is scraping both sides of the aisle as he comes in and and he he gets his own pew. And I don't mean that to be mean. But with that, and he's let's say he grew up, and that's all he's ever known. He was born the size of the shape of an orange, and he's only been an orange ever since, just a much larger one. And then something happens. He goes to the radical Bible boot camp or something, and there they are, and with Sergeant Saintly, whatever, and, and there he goes, and he comes back, and that guy is, is and now, now Anthony is a trim, lean, mean Bible machine. There he is, right there. The problem is. If he tried to put on his old wardrobe, he's going to look like a bell. Ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding, because all of his clothes are going to fan out, but he doesn't fit them anymore, because the new Anthony doesn't fit the old wardrobe. Does that make sense? Well, How much more you, saints, before you knew Jesus, you were obese in sin. You were all kinds of clotted with nastiness that God has chiseled off of you. And by the way, like the new, uh, like the new getup. And with that, he's got a whole new wardrobe that glorifies him. That no longer speaks of desperation. That no longer speaks about emptiness. And let's be, let's face it, some people can dress in certain ways that you can say, that looks pretty desperate. That's not who we are anymore. So review quick before we move on to the third one. Number one, he cleanses. cleanses. Number two, he, cleanses. right. Aren't you thankful he does, he does that? Now, aren't you thankful that Moses had to do this and you didn't have to? All right. Look at number three, then, by the way, fits right in with verse nine. It says he put a turban on his head. Also, on the turban, on the front, he put a golden plate, a holy crown as the Lord had commanded Moses. You ready for number three? Number three, he crowns. And this, by the way, if you realize, if the first two don't happen, you will try to get that one yourself. There's the problem. You see, understand, we spent our whole life trying to get crowns. Crowns, by the way, that the Bible makes clear, are perishable. In other words, you get it, but it fades away. But not the crown that God promises. When Paul was about to die, and this is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, and I believe it's about verse 8. Because he had said, "I've, I've fought the fight, I've won the race, I've kept the faith. I believe that's verse 7. And he says, And now finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. It says, Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to everyone who has loved his appearing. Have you loved that Jesus came? I'm not saying just that you appreciate, but do, do you love that Jesus came for you? Guess what? Do you love it? Honestly, do you? Do you love that Jesus came? Do you? Why are you so mellow about it? Because you're British? Oh, yes, very nice. With all due respect, this would be something that should jazz your groovy. And not all of you like that. Like Some of you, you come from way too, your blood way too hot for that kind of thing. Listen, if you've loved Jesus' appearing, he's got a crown waiting for you, beloved. A crown waiting for you, for which it, leaks, it looks like from the elders, we're going to throw it back down at him. What's beautiful is what it says on it. You learn about, about, a lot about a hat, by the way. Learn, about, learn a lot about a person's identity. Sometimes what their, what their allegiance is to some football team or to some other sports team. <clears throat> and sometimes you just learn my name. Anyways, so <coughs> listen to this. Twice before this point, he's already made clear what this thing says. And it's specific, by the way. And we actually, in some sense, saying it. When it says back the way, by the way, back in Exodus chapter 28, when this thing was to be made, he says, you shall make, verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it this specific statement, holiness to the Lord. It does not say holiness from the world. Holiness from doing nasty things. Holiness from drinking. Holiness from rated R movies. Holiness from hanging out with girls with reputations. Holiness from, listen, that's the way the world tries to play holiness. Please hear me. Biblical holiness is not holiness from, it's holiness to. What sets you apart is not what you ran from, it's who you came to. Because there are other people who have run from that stuff, and they're in all kinds of meetings at least seven times a week, but that doesn't mean they've run to the Lord. <clears throat> That's not the kind of holiness we're looking at. Here's the funny thing. When I'm holy to the Lord, I will find myself not doing some of the things, anything, by the way, that would be that kind of disrespectful, impious behavior, but th- now I don't do it because it's like, check me out, I'm holy. my eyes are on the Lord, those things just don't get appetizing anymore. So understand when the Lord gives you a crown in the simplest sense, when God gives you a crown, it's not just like, check you out. You won. here's a go. I'd like to think everyone would have made that possible. That's not the point. See, when God crowns you, he puts a crown on you. You know what it says? It says mine. That's what the Lord puts on there. And I think, man, there could be nothing better to be put on there than that. That's the crown holiness to the Lord that's the point now listen look at the order he's got to clean you first but that clean by the way comes at your permission can you imagine i wonder how i mean obviously it was quite awkward for aaron but do you think he's like no way i'm not gonna do that well then you're not being a priest and then i gotta put the clothes on you aaron and then i'm gonna put the crown he's like okay i'm good with the crown What well, any of you have a problem with the crown it's the first two steps that are a little rougher right I thought, Lord, you could crown me anytime you want. And God's like, the only crown I can do right now is bam, because the real crown has to happen. There's some things that have to happen first. I got to cleanse you. I got to clothe you. I'm going to get you on the inside. I'm going to get you on the outside. But it's my job to lift you up. It's not yours. You cannot establish yourself. The book of Romans says, Now unto him who was able to establish you by my gospel. Please understand that. If you're trying to fight to prove yourself, You'll spend the rest of your life, if you feel like you have, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to keep yourself proven. It's the Lord who does the work. Isn't it beautiful how that works? Okay, question now, what's number one? Thank you. Now, how about all of you? Number one? Number two? Number three? Beautiful. That's a great place to go. And then with that, from there, he goes into the sacrifices. But I'm going to be honest with you. The last thing, and this is, by the way, starting in verse 10 is he consecrates. He sets apart. But I'll be honest. For the sake of time today, what I'd rather do is have us really for a moment prepare our hearts and let the Lord minister to us. Because we could dive into a lot more of this and then our brains would be like, oh yeah, it's awesome. Oh, what was it about? I have no idea. There's some C words. He, I don't know, He he clips and he... Changes, and I don't know, what was it again? But please hear me in this. God wants you to be a priest, but he doesn't want you to be a priest. You don't work for him. He adopts you so you can actually have purpose to be part of the family trade. And you know what? If your dad could do anything, if you could pick a dad to be adopted by, and say, then you knew the part of being adopted is that you were going to carry on the family business. What kind of dad would you pick? And what kind of job would you have him do? Would you pick a dad who simply took you because he could get more work done around the house to make you work for him? in the end of it all, sort of like you got hired by a really big institution where he doesn't even know your name. You're just one of whatever. And you can only approach at given moments. Or worse yet, he's so busy you can only talk to one of his accountants or his mother. Is that what you'd want as a father? Would you want a father... Who can't stop thinking about you. Who stares at you with the greatest admiration, not in some creepy way, because the love he has in you, the love he has in him for you, consumes him. I know that feeling. The second... I wouldn't think, well, my kids, we're going to get a lot done around here. We have a lot more to do when they get busy, and I love them for it. But I adore them. I adore them. And I'm an evil human being like the rest of us. But I get a hint of that. Who didn't adopt you to make you work for him. He adopted you because he wants you. Can I just say this? Please hear me god does not need you he wants you there's a big difference to be needed there is something expected of you in performance he wants you he wants you but there is a family business what family business would you pick a dentist not me there's some people out there that's the game praise God for dentists especially good ones a policeman not me I I mean I pray for I pray for our police I genuinely do because can you imagine dealing with people that every one of them is going to tell you they're innocent and most of them are lying let's be honest A a policeman's job is to find out who did what wrong A paramedic? Perhaps better. They just find out who's hurting and try to fix them. By the way, you can be either. You're aware of that, right? A situation happens and you can run in as a policeman to try to figure out who to blame. Or you can run in to try to figure out who's hurt and who needs help. Well, please hear me. My dad, who, by the way, is still into open adoption. Open in the sense he's open to adopt you. And then he closes it. He doesn't let your old nasty guardian at you, who is the devil. Hasn't done a good job at all. He's in the business of saving lives, taking dead people and making them alive. That's what he does. He takes dead people who were his enemies and he reconciles them and makes them alive. He takes filthy sinners and he makes them pure. Because he cleanses them. He takes ragged beggars and clothes them in majesty. Because he clothes them. He takes people who have been covered in shame and he crowns them with glory. Because he crowns. And then he takes people who were purposeless except their own destruction and he consecrates them and says, When I adopted you, I'd like you to be part of the family business. Is that not amazing? You get to actually not work for your dad. You get to work with your dad. See, the cool thing is, is my dad loves what he's doing so much. He has no intention of retiring. Now, I have no boys. You're aware of that. If you know our family, Ruthie's as close as it's going to get. But if I did, and I said, all right, someday you're going to be a pastor. Do you ever honestly think I would hand over a church to him and say, I'm done. I just want to go play golf. If I go senile, my wife's going to paint a bunch of people's faces on a wall so I can preach to them. And I said, make sure one's got their hand raised so I could say, that person raised their hand. Got saved, he was what he did. Notice how I assume somehow I'll go see now and my wife won't. (laughs) See, I, I love, last night, I sat for a moment and I was sitting and talking with someone and praying with them. And I looked over and there was my wife leaning over and talking and praying with someone. And there was my oldest leaning over and talking and praying with someone. And there was my youngest eating chocolate. Pray for my young. Not there's no sin in any child. Can you imagine how wonderful that felt? Now, when I want to say this as we go to prayer. My dad's here, and he's open for adoption. He wants your permission. There's a cost for adoption, any adoption. Boy, we know that well. The cost is a life for a life. But my father loves you so much that he allowed his son to be tortured to death on a cross so that all of your guilt, all of your sin, all of your shame, and mine too, could be paid for in full. He paid for it all. But here's the rough moment. Could you imagine as a parent paying for all of that? I've paid your debt. I've removed your shame. And I've come here for you. Could you imagine the pain of a father if the child were to look and say, nah, I'd rather be here without you. My father wants you. And he wants to pull you in, cleanse you, clothe you, and crown you, and then consecrate you to be part of the family business. So, beloved, let me ask you a question as we go to prayer. There were four things then. What was the first that he does? I'm sorry, I heard a few of you, but um, I, I, I I have this syndrome where I can only hear if there's more than, I don't know, 40 of you saying it. What's the first one? Beautiful. What's the second? And what's the third? And what's the fourth? Beautiful. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, I want to thank you so much for the blessing of what you've done in this time. You are amazing. I thank you for the way that you offer to do this in our lives right now. Because what you've done is miraculous. And Lord, we then as priests become ambassadors of adoption. (laughs) Bringing, Lord, before you the concerns of those things that are obstacles to children who could say yes to you otherwise. But also bringing a father who loves children to the orphaned souls of this world To say, "I, I would like you to be mine. I want you. And I pray right now for every person in this room. First, who may still right now be living in this orphanage of this world. Today, they could be taken home to you. But I also pray for everyone here who has been adopted by you. You've told us you've not given us the spirit of bondage again to fear. And I pray, Lord, for those who are adopted but living as if somehow you're not taking care of them. Like refusing to really trust that it's your job to take care of them. I've learned this of a Father, Lord, that you provide, that you protect, And you take pleasure and you prepare your children. Can I be such a father to my children, Lord, that when they hear the name Father, the word Father, they have nothing to overcome when they think of you. And I pray for every believer here first before the invitation goes out to receive your offer today. I pray, Father, today for every believer in here, for everyone who's been adopted, that today, Lord, we would become ambassadors, priests, the way you call us to, that you would cleanse us, that you would clothe us, you would crown us in what way where we would see you say that we are yours. But then consecrate us, Lord, to be a part of the family business. And Lord, if there's anything in the way of that, we're refusing cleansing of an area, Lord, because we like the dirt. Or somehow we want to argue over the wardrobe because somehow its style doesn't jive with, our uns- with, our, with the part, any part of us that still craves sin. Or we just don't even recognize how clean you've made us. Or we're so consumed with ourselves that we don't feel worthy for the crown. But Lord, we're not worthy. We'll never be worthy. That's why it's grace. Get our eyes off of us and put them on you where they belong. And make us such ambassadors, I pray. Send us out of here, Lord, with a deeper understanding of the calling you've placed in our lives. And a greater appreciation for it. And Lord, with that as well, I pray right now if there be any or many who have yet to say yes or aren't sure if they ever have said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross, the payment for which they would be adopted. I pray today as your gospel has gone forth and your Holy Spirit convicts, now Lord, I pray, give us the courage to respond. And if today you want to make that choice to say yes to Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. What you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I am a sinner. I've failed. But you are a savior of sinners. And you as a righteous judge punish the sin. But I believe you so loved me, you sent your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross so that all of my sin and everyone's sins could be properly punished. And he died there just like Scripture promised, was buried, and just like Scripture promised, he rose again on the third day to be not only the Savior who died for me, but the resurrected Lord. And so I say yes Father, to your adoption, declaring Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I say yes to Jesus' Lordship in this new life you give me. And I say yes to you as my Father. So have me now. I belong to you. Cleanse me. Clothe me. Crown me. And consecrate me for your will. And I am so thankful you want me. May every part of my being understand that. As I am yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.